Welcome to Gate City Vineyard. We're so happy to have you here. We're trying the countdown method so I don't have to, you know, try to shout us all down and get, get us back together. But I, I hope that helps as we get it together. I love that we love to greet one another and talk to one another. And I just invite you as well after church to stay and chat and enjoy each other's company. It's such a blessing when the people of God like each other. Isn't that nice? <laughs> it's really nice. So I just love that. Um, I... I'm going to launch into John 7 and 8, but first of all, by telling you about myself. You, many of you know the story that I was a very happy atheist at the age of 14. I was very happy to be an atheist. I was very content in what I believed or didn't believe. Uh, I loved arguing with people. I was very confident about what I believed. And then I went through a whole questioning process, which I've talked about before. Uh, I had a boyfriend who, you know, was really smart, but he still believed in Jesus. Like, how can that be? Why, why would a smart person believe in Jesus? I, you know, I had other questions about life and the purpose of life. I argued with my friends. I argued with their parents. I even started reading the Bible just to figure out what it was about. And finally, cracks began to appear in the solid wall of my confidence. So the cracks were starting to appear. It started to make sense. And Jesus was appealing. He is appealing. And I started to read a few books that, that really helped. I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I read More Than a Carpenter um, by Josh McDowell. And all of these convinced me that you can be a smart person and believe in Jesus. And so I started to realize that. I started to pray a little bit, those funny prayers you pray when you're not quite sure. You look up at the ceiling and you go, well, God, if you're there, I'm talking to you. And you try to talk to him. And the funny thing is, it seemed like actually I wasn't just talking to the ceiling. It seemed like he was there. And so I really started to believe it was all true. I had a little Bible, and then the back page of the Bible, it had a little page called How to Become a Christian. <laughs> And it had like, you know, five points, you know, like a five-step process to pray through just a confession and commitment prayer to Jesus. And so it was right there. It was all ready for me. And I was all ready. I believed it. So did I become a Christian then? No. I stalled. And I waited. And I waited. And I stalled. I just didn't want to quite do it just yet. You know what I'm saying? I had all kinds of excuses. I mean, I'm only 15. I got a lot of life to live, you know? I, convinced, I, I kid you not, one of my thoughts was, I've never smoked a joint yet, and I really want to. <laughs> so shouldn't I get that done before I become a Christian? Or I'd never been drunk before. I wanted to do that before I became a Christian. Like, I had all these excuses. I thought, my parents are going to be mad. Like, they're not going to like it. So maybe I should wait until I go off to college and do it after. I just had all these excuses until I just couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> Jesus just kind of built up in me like a, like, the, like a power hose, you know, like so I just knew it was, it was true and I couldn't stand it anymore. My, my conscience was sort of pulsing with the reality of it all and so I finally knew I had to do it. Regardless of all my questions, regardless I hadn't smoked a joint yet, I needed to do it. I needed to commit myself to Jesus. And so I remember kneeling next to my bed with my little Bible open with the, the four steps and I, five steps, and I prayed that Jesus was the Son of God and would he forgive me of my sins and would he accept me as his child. And I became a Christian. I made a decision. And this passage that we're going to be talking about in John 7 and 8 is all about reactions to Jesus and decisions. It's about reactions to him, and then what is the decision we make 
based on what we see about Jesus. And we're going to see all about the reactions of many different people over these two chapters to Jesus and what they end up deciding about him. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just mix it up for you today just to, just to blow your minds, just, you know, because it's the day before Halloween. Why not? Let's get a little crazy here. We're going to go backwards in the sense that I'm going to show you the reactions of the people before you see what Jesus actually said that they're reacting to. Okay, now you have the Bible. You can always look at it anyway. But I'm going to be talking first about the reactions. And then we're going to look at what did Jesus say that caused all these reactions. Now, why am I doing this backwards? Not just to mess with your minds, um, but I have a couple of reasons. And one is this, that, that I want us to see as we're looking just at the reactions in and of themselves, that reactions are not always logical. We don't always logical in our response to the world. Many of us are afraid to, uh, you know, kind of nervous getting on a plane or on a roller coaster when honestly the reality is you are more in danger driving your car out on Market Street than you are flying in a plane or on a roller coaster. But we're more afraid of that. We're not logical as people, and you're going to see these reactions. We can see a little bit better watching the reactions, how they're not always logical. They're not always based on good information, the decisions and the reactions these people make. And second of all, I'm going to show you, I want to show you the reactions first because I want you to see the range of possible reactions to Jesus and how some of us may have some of those reactions to him as well. But it's a little easier to look at them uh, dispassionately if we're looking at their reactions, not ours. But I, we may recognize ourselves in some of these reactions. And then I will finally get to us to what, what did Jesus say that provoked all those reactions. And I'm putting that at the end because I want not only us to see the reactions that they had, but I want to provoke a reaction in us. What's our reaction to what Jesus says? What is our response? What is our decision? Do we believe? And I want to speak to you this morning if there's anyone in this room today who isn't sure about that. Maybe you've never fully surrendered yourself to Jesus. It's always been a little bit of a question mark in your mind. I'm going to give you an opportunity even at the end of the service to, to make that commitment, to say this is going to be my decision about Jesus. It won't be weird. It won't, it won't make you do anything hard. But I just, I want to always to have that opportunity because that's really what these two chapters are about. What's your reaction to Jesus and what's your decision? So we're going to jump right into it, uh, and we're going to kind of fly through it, so be ready. Um, and we're going to start at uh, chapter 7 and 8. If you need the, the handouts, they're back there. Kids, there is sermon bingo. She mentioned that, so if you need sermon bingo, it's out there. You're welcome to run out in the lobby and get it and come right back. Um, although I may have already said a couple of words that you've missed in the bingo, so here we go. We're going to start with our first rea uh, the first reaction of the people, and that one is unbelief. And it's from his own family. Read this from John 7, 2 to 5. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Admittedly, it's got to be hard to think about your own brother as being God, <laughs> the Son of God, right? I mean, it's kind of awkward dinner table conversation. Yeah, so Big Brother is actually the Son of God. And they're like, yeah, really? <laughs> you know, have you seen his room? Um, no. <laughs> I, I got thinking about this this morning. I was like, did Jesus keep a tidy room as a teenager? I don't know. You know, I mean, he was a regular person. Uh, I'm going to assume he kept a tidy room, but who knows? But, but you know, it was a hard, a hard take, right, for a brother to think of their own brother 
as, as divine. But it's interesting that they were still supportive of him becoming a public figure, right? Do your thing. They even were kind of giving a nod to his miracles. You've been doing things, so go ahead and do them. And so what the brothers really show us, it's possible to have a reaction where you believe in the miracles but still don't receive Jesus as Lord. You can see it. Yeah, he was a great man. He even did marry. He's an awesome. But that's different from me saying, I'm going to follow him. So that was one reaction. Let's go to reaction number two. The reaction number two is curiosity. Lots of curiosity in these two chapters. John 7, 11 to 13. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about, them, about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. See, some approved of him, saying he's a good man. Some disproved of him, saying he deceives the people. Mostly they're all just curious. They're whispering about him. They just want to know what's going on with Jesus. Where is he? What's he doing? You know, is he good? Is he bad? They're just whispering. They're curious, like we all are when we see a famous person, right? We're all curious. What are they doing? What are they saying? We read, we read the, you know, the posts about them. We read magazines. We look at YouTube videos about them. We, wanna, we don't really know anything about these movie stars, do we? But we all have opinions about them. I mean, uh, say a few names that I could, you all have an opinion about that movie star on the very little bit of information that we actually know. For example, Prince William and Kate can do no wrong. Okay, they're perfect, all right? If you ask me, they're perfect. I mean, I am obsessed. I love Princess Kate. I know some of you are like, oh, no. I, I respected you before this. But no, I love them. And, and, and I'll buy any magazine that has her on the cover because she's gorgeous and she's so cute with the kids and he's so, like, stately and handsome and very king-like. You know, he's going to be great. So I just love them. Now, I know very little about them, okay? I only know whatever they've curated to me in some magazines and a few shows on TV or whatever. Um, but... You know, so they could be terrible. They could be nasty at home. They could be the worst kind of people. But I, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> um, I, just, I just think they're great. So that's kind of how we are, and that's kind of how they were. Like, they didn't know really what Jesus was like. They saw him at a distance. They just were all whispering, what's he like? What's he doing? And some thought he was great, and some thought he was terrible. It's the kind of thing we do. And, and interestingly, when you have this kind of curiosity, there's no commitment on your part. Right? It said they wouldn't speak out and say anything publicly about it. So they're not about to make a stand for Jesus, no matter what they think about him. Let's go to reaction number three. This one is amazement. This one's getting a little closer to truth anyway. Jesus comes out and begins to speak. John 7, 14 to 15. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught. So I just love that, you know, he gets up to teach, and there's like a hush over the crowd, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable, because the words of Jesus are penetrating. They were then, they still are today. What he says is both challenging and inspiring. It's, it's hard, but it's, it's, it's smooth, like it feels right to your soul. I mean, that's what Jesus' words are like, and they got to see that and experience that right up front. And I feel this way when I reread the Gospels, right? You know, that, it was the words about Jesus that made me come to faith as a 15-year-old, and yet still today, I can read them, and I get a chill down my spine, because Jesus is just so real, so unexpected, so profound, so wise, speaks to all of our needs. And so we see some amazement here, which is a good thing. We should be amazed by Jesus, right? 
The next one is indecision. John 7, 25 to 27. At this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. This is a very easily swayed, very confused crowd. First of all, they're completely wrong. Yes, they should know where the Messiah is from. Scripture says it. Um, in Micah 5.2, it says that he's going to be from Bethlehem. But here's the funny part. No one knows that Jesus is from Bethlehem in this crowd, right? Neither the Jewish leaders or these, this, this crowd, they all think he's a guy from Galilee. So they're all confused. They're all based, they have no information. Nobody's bothered to go figure out where he was born. So they're all really confused. And what we see from this crowd is that they're just looking for someone else to tell them what to believe. What are the authorities saying? What, what is it? You know, you tell me as opposed to looking at Jesus himself and saying, what is my reaction to him? I'm in his presence. Who cares what the authorities think about him? I'm in the presence of Jesus. And so I would say that to us today as well. Who cares what I say or anyone else says about Jesus? Find him yourself. Get into relationship with him and he'll speak to you. And hopefully things I say or other people say will help you in that walk. But let's not look to other people to tell us what to think about Jesus. All right, number five, anger. You will notice as you read seven and eight that the anger builds throughout these two chapters. They keep trying to seize him and to arrest him. The Jewish leaders are, ch- are threatened and challenged by Jesus' words to them. And, you know, there's two reactions. When you're threatened or challenged, you can either listen and learn or you can get angry. Most of us get angry. <laughs> we don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be feel a little threatened in our worldview. And that's what they did. They didn't listen and learn and try to figure out why, what is Jesus telling us about ourselves that we should know? They instead got angry. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This, hap- this little line happens a few times in these passages, and I just love it. Like, like they, here, you know, it's like me standing here, and let's say you all tried to seize me. How am I going to just slip out the door? Like, there's no way. But Jesus, of course, can do that. Like, he just keeps slipping away from them until the moment when it was his time. He was in control, not them. All right, let's keep going. Reaction number six. Finally, we get a good one. Belief. Some people actually believe after they see him. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? John 7, 40 to 41. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. See, in the midst of all the anger and the confusion and the indecision, there are some who believed. And yes, I'm sure some of them believed just because they saw the miracles. Maybe their belief was a little shallow, but some of them found that he actually had the words of life. I'm jumping a little bit outside of chapters 7 and 8, but if you go to the very end of 6, which we didn't cover last week, there's a little interaction of Jesus with his disciples. See, a lot of people were leaving him at that point because his teaching was getting harder. And so he turns to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says this beautiful thing. He says... Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So they saw him, and they realized, as hard as his teachings may be, as hard as this road might be that I'm going to have to take to follow Jesus in early Roman times, I'm going to do it because you have the words of eternal life, God. And God gave them faith. 
All right, three more reactions. Reaction number seven is division. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. So we're back to this, who is he? Where is he from? <laughs> they don't know. The Jewish people too at that time would have thought, many of them anyway, would have thought that the prophet and the Messiah would be two different people who would come. And so Jesus seemed to be like both. <laughs> so it was confusing. He, he was outside of what they expected in many ways, right? They expected a king, somebody that was going to conquer and set them free from Rome. And instead, you know, he's this, this, this quiet guy who, you know, speaks challenge to the leaders and isn't taking up arms and isn't forming an army. And he's acting like the prophet and the Messiah. So there's a lot of confusion around him. And so... Again, rather than, if someone, if he was not what they expected, rather than looking at him and saying, uh, let me learn from this, let me figure out who he is, instead, what they do, they just argue about it. <laughs> just debate about it. Um, there's indecision about it. And this is a lot like us today as well. We argue about the church and doctrines and this thing and that thing, debating, creating division rather than seeking out Jesus. Again, we come back to, if you look at Jesus, he begins to peel away the division. So we see here division among the people as they experience Jesus. Reaction number eight is challenge. The Pharisees challenged him in John 8, 13. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And so they're challenging him. They're saying, we don't like what, you hear, what I'm hearing. And so your testimony is not valid. We don't, we don't, we're not agreeing. So they're challenging him. And then right after that, they say, where's your father? That's a, actually an interesting challenge because they're saying, you, you know, only if I can get your father to corroborate what you're saying are we going to believe you. We can't believe who you are, so let's, let's get somebody outside of you as an authority. Your testimony about yourself is not good enough. Of course, that's when Jesus starts talking about God being his father, and that gets him in more trouble, but that's more to Jesus' point, so let's stay on the reactions. So the reactions are they're just challenging. Who are you to say all this stuff that you're saying? Reaction number nine is insults. It starts to get ruder and more intense as we get to the end of these two chapters. John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? This is a big insult. If we remember from a couple weeks ago, to be a Samaritan is to be hated, despised, looked down upon. And so this is a real insult. And then on John 8, 52 to 53, it says this, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And this kind of sums up what they're saying about him for all of these chapters. Who are you, and who do you think you are? Jesus is really being insulted here. They're getting angry, and they're going to shut him down. He's gone too far. And then we get to the last reaction, and it's murderous rage. This is when it gets real ugly. In John 8, 57 to 59, it says, You are not yet 50 years old, they said to Jesus, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away again from the temple grounds. 
See, at this point, Jesus has gone too far. He's making claims about himself that equate him with God. And they have seen it, and they're overwhelmed with fury. No one can get away with this. No one can blaspheme like this. And this is the kind of reaction a person has when they have shut out any possibility that they're wrong. See, they've decided they've stopped listening. They've stopped trying to figure out if Jesus really is the Messiah or not. They've stopped shut out the possibility. They've closed their mind to anything more about Jesus. We're just going to stone him. We've got to kill him. We've got to take him out. So I thought this was fascinating. Let's look at all these 10 reactions again on the next slide. Unbelief, curiosity, amazement, indecision, anger, belief, division, challenge, insults, and murderous rage, all in two chapters. But it's interesting, isn't it, that these are the same reactions people have to Jesus today. All of these. You probably know some people who don't believe. You probably know some people who are just curious. You probably know some people who, you know, are, are kind of indecided about God. And there's some that you probably know who are angry at Jesus for whatever reason. They don't want to even talk about it. They've completely shut the door to Jesus and to Christianity. And then there's some who truly believe and have said, despite it all, despite all of this questioning that's going on, despite the difficulty of following him, I believe. There's some who made that decision to follow Jesus. Interesting, right? All right, so now we're going to go backwards, right? So we started with the reactions. What in the world was Jesus saying that was getting them all worked up like this? We're going to look at some things that Jesus said, and he said a lot of things over these two chapters, but I'm going to group them into three categories, all right? Three statements of Jesus that I think I want us to listen to, but I also now want us to ask ourselves, in light of all these possible reactions, what's your reaction to what Jesus says? What are you thinking when you hear these things that Jesus says? What kind of reaction does it provoke in us? And the first statement is this. Jesus makes a rebuke to people who think they're okay with God, but really are not. He makes a statement, a rebuke to those who think they're okay with God, but really are not. Let me just list you a few of the scriptures that he talks about here. John seven nineteen. Has not Moses given you the law? yet not one of you keeps the law. Here these are Pharisees and legal scholars. They think that the law is going to save them. He says, you don't even keep the law. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you did not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. He's telling them they're going to die, <laughs> that they're, they're, there's no covering for their sins in their religion. John 8, 39 to 41, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what, G what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. You might ask, well, who's, the fa who's their father? It goes on, 842, if God were your father, you would love me, for I've come here from God. You are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is you do not belong to God. Wow. What a dressing down he's giving over the course of these two chapters to the leaders of the law, the temple priests. And these are the people who are the right, the good people. They're the churchgoers, right? They're the ones in the temple every day. They're the ones doing all the right things. And he's saying to them, first of all, you can't keep the law, the law that you think is going to save you. you. You're so proud that you're a descendant of Abraham, but you're not even doing what Abraham would do. You're not believing in me. And if you truly knew God, if you really belonged to him, you'd recognize what God is doing here. 
the spirit within you would, 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 would testify to his truth and who he is, and you'd recognize who Jesus was. But instead, they think that because of their position, because of their position in the temple, because of their holy behaviors, that they're safe, that they're in an in-group with God. Instead, he says, your father is the devil. You're following the devil. It's a tough word, but I'm sure you know where I'm going, which is it's not just a word for a bunch of Pharisees in the first century Rome. This is a word for us, and it's a sobering word. It's a word to say that if we are here and we think because we come to church, because we bring our family to church, because we're good tithers, because we do some service projects here and there, because we got the right doctrine and we believe all the right things, that somehow we're good with God, then we've got a second thing coming. That we better wake up because that's not what makes us right from God, with God. He says, you will die in your sins unless you believe I am he. And so the painful truth is that we will die in our sins no matter how good we are if we have not bowed the knee to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That is the gospel. And we don't like to say it quite so boldly all the time, but it's a truth that Jesus is saying right here, right there. If we haven't acknowledged him as Lord, we're lost. We have, there's no, the law will not save us. Our good works will not save us. And this is the message Jesus is giving, loud and clear. No wonder they didn't like it. <laughs> tough words, tough words. Now here's a second statement, which helps us with the first, I think. And the second statement that Jesus makes throughout these two chapters is a revelation. It's a revelation that he brings that only Jesus will fulfill our deepest needs. And I love this. There's a few chapters, teachings in this chapter that just ring above all the just confusion. And this is one of them. John 7, 37 to 39. And he says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit. Jesus is calling out to his disciples, and he's calling out to you, I know you're thirsty. I know that you know that there's got to be something more to life than this, than just getting up and going to work and coming home and doing the thing. There's got to be more. We're thirsty. He knows that we're thirsty for love, that we want that love that just knows us deep down, and we, you know, we may have very good human loves on this earth, but they just simply don't meet that deep need, do they? They don't meet that deepest thirst. And we know that we're created for worship. We, we, we walk out and we see the ocean or we see a mountain. We, you know, we worship automatically. Who are we meant to worship? We have it within us. And Jesus is saying, I know you're a thirsty people, and guess what? I've got water for you. I've got water for you. Where are you thirsty today, church? Where does it seem like it's just same old, same old, same old, same old, dry, 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 dry? He's saying, I've got water for you. And here's what I love about this. This just, just gives me chills. He doesn't say, come to me and drink, and I'll give you a cup of water, does he? He says, come to me and drink, and what does he say is going to happen? Rivers of water. 
Rivers of water are going to flow down over you. Rivers, not just a little, little cup of water, but rivers of the Holy Spirit will flow over us. Our God is more lavish and more bountiful than you can even imagine. He has more to pour out on you than you've ever experienced. And the only thing holding it back is us. It's us just saying, oh, I don't know, I'm afraid, I don't know, you know, I got, I got stuff to do. No, he wants to pour down on you. It's a little bit like what I said last week. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in asking for just, I need a little piece of bread, and here's Jesus walking across the water for us. <laughs> like, he's ready to pour out more than you could ever ask or imagine or think. We sometimes set our sights too small. And, and I encourage you in this to ask someone you know and respect who's walked with Jesus a long time. And what they'll tell you is that as the years go on, it gets richer and richer that your love for him goes deeper and deeper. His presence in your life gets sweeter and fuller, and the water becomes fuller and flows more easily through you and over you. Even in the hardest times, Jesus outdoes himself. Corrie Ten Boom put it this way after coming out of the Nazi prison camps, and she said, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. He never runs dry never runs dry. And so I ask you today, where are you thirsty? Where does it just feel dry? And Jesus is saying, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. And rivers of water, living water, will pour over you by his spirit. The last statement of Jesus is a declaration that Jesus is God. And this is, of course, what gets him in the most trouble. By equating himself with God, he is blaspheming, and that's why they feel uh, it's punishable by death in Jewish law, in the ancient Jewish world. And so um, this, is, this is what gets him in the most trouble. But he gradually builds up to it. This is kind of interesting, too. Um, first, he indicates that he's sent from God. So he starts talking about how I'm sent from God. So he says it a couple different ways. Um, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Then in John 7, 28, I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know me, know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So first of all, he's trying to get the idea to them, I'm sent from God. But then, and by the way, they try to seize him just after that because that was enough to be close enough to blasphemy um, for, for them. But then he points out how he reflects the nature of God. When you see him, you are seeing something of what the Father is like. He says, if you do not know me or my Father, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. See, if we want to know what God the Father is like, we look at Jesus. He reflects him. And then in John 8, 28, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. This way of talking about the Father was very unusual. The Jewish people did not talk about God the Father in this kind of intimate, close way that they were of one mind. And so it's gone to a different place here. And then he kind of ups the ante again. And he states that he has power only God has. John 8, 49, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whatever, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So now he's really done it, right? I mean, he's over death? Obey him? Like he's God? 
And so this is when people start to say things like, you are demon-possessed, <laughs> you're a Samaritan, you're crazy. Who do you think you are? And then we get to the climax of the passage. In many ways, this is the climax of the whole first half of John. We've been studying this whole first half of John for a little bit here. And this is when Jesus finally reveals his hand. He reveals who he is. And the interaction goes like this. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. This word that he uses in Greek, I am, is ego, I me. And it's a present tense form. It means, I, it's kind of like it is in English. I am, I continue. I've always been and I'm always going to continue. It's a continuous type of presence, of reality that he's always been and he always will be. It's an echo of God's identification of himself to Moses, right? When he says, I am that I am. Tell them who sent you. I am sent you. It's not the exact same uh, word, but it's, it's reminiscent. It's an echo. And also other verses in Isaiah and Psalms, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Psalm 92, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this idea that God has been from forever, from before to the end. And guess what? This was not lost on the people listening to Jesus. They knew this is what he was talking about, that he's God, that he's from everlasting to everlasting. So don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus was just a good teacher and that he never meant to be divine. He never meant for people to worship him. There's a whole line of thought about that, that that was something people added later. Read John and many other places in the New Testament where Jesus is extremely clear about who he is, that he is divine, that he's from God, and that he is God, and that the only way to know him and to know God is through him. He's very clear on that and what we need to do. Jesus is God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit from everlasting to everlasting, creator from the beginning of time to the end. He is and was and always will be. That's our Jesus. What's our reaction to that? What's our reaction to that? And so I just want to bring this to a close by asking us the question, do you believe? I know I'm talking to a, a a crowd of mostly believers in here, but not perhaps totally. And, but it's a question for all of us to see what's our reaction to Jesus? What's the right reaction to Jesus and what he's telling us here? And how do we come to know him more? More of that thirst getting filled by him. And it's interesting, in verse 717, this is the last verse we'll look at today, helps us to understand how we come to faith. And what's the posture we should take before Jesus? I just love this. It says this, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. If anyone chooses to do God's will, then he's going to show himself. And um, there's a great Bible commentary in the Wesleyan tradition by jo Joseph Donegal um, that actually Chris loaned to me. It's really been great. And it says this, and I, I love this quote. It says, This simple test in John 7:17. Sets the duty of obedience before the privilege of discernment. Let me say that again. Sets the duty of obedience before the privilege of discernment. To put it differently, the seeker must demonstrate humble receptivity before God will entrust him or her with the truth. Conversely, those who inquire about the truth merely out of curiosity or wish to know the truth before deciding to obey truth will never find the truth they even desperately seek find this fascinating 
Are we in a receptive place to receive the truth, even when we're not still sure about the truth? Because when we are receptive, then God comes. It reminds me a little bit of a story that um, Paul's dad told me, my father-in-law, before he passed away. He came to Christ uh, many years ago, but he said it was hard for him at first. He was, he was challenged about it. He's a doctor and a scientist, and so he just thought it must all be foolish. But, you know, he was reading a lot about Christianity. His wife had become a believer. Paul had become a believer as a teenager. And so, you know, he was wrestling with it, and he, but he just couldn't get to the place where he could just say, okay, I believe. Like, it just, he just couldn't kind of make that leap, right? There's a kind of a leap that has to take place. And I'll never forget this. He said this to me, that he said he finally talked to God, and he said this, if this is all true, if you will show me the truth and, and give me faith to believe it, then I commit ahead of time to bend the knee before you as Lord. In other words, it's not going to be, oh, let me figure out if it's true, and then I'll decide if I'm going to follow it. <laughs> it's, if this is true, I'm, I'm, I'm going down on my knees before you, Jesus, because you're, you're Lord and Savior of my life. I'm giving you the whole thing if this is true. He surrendered fully before he even knew. And then he said, the minute he said that, God flooded him with faith. He was like, it's true. <laughs> he just knew. He'd done all the studying, he'd asked all the questions, but he just knew once his heart was in a receptive place to God. So I want to invite the musicians to come on up, and I promised you at the beginning that I was going to give you an opportunity for anyone here who has never surrendered their heart to Jesus, who has never fully bent the knee to him. Now, many of us may have said, I believe this stuff. I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he forgave my sins, blah, blah, blah. But maybe we're knowing as I'm talking and as we're thinking about this that we've never really submitted and surrendered to Jesus' lordship in our life. And I also know there's maybe some of us who said, I've been around this Christian thing for so long and it just hasn't worked like I just everyone else seems to hear from the Lord everyone else seems to have this personal relationship with Christ and I don't know it just isn't there I don't see that all the time for me I don't see that and I want to just propose to you for a moment that it could be the reason you're not experiencing that intimacy with Christ is because you haven't surrendered yourself fully to Jesus without reservation without conditions if this is true I bend the knee to you Jesus I surrender to you. And so you might have been here a long time, or maybe just you're newer here, but I want to give you an opportunity with no holding back, with no conditions. And I'm I'm thinking that some of us may be saying, I've never done this before, but yeah, I want to. I think this is the moment to say yes to Jesus fully. I've done it in little bits, but never fully committed myself, surrendered myself to Jesus. And so if that's you today, and you're thinking, I've never done it before, but I think maybe I'm ready to do that today, I'm going to ask you to do an interesting thing. I'm going to ask you just to stand. And I, there's nothing magical about standing, but there's something about physically committing ourselves to something, and that we have a moment where we say, this is the moment where I committed myself to Jesus. And that I want to stand right now doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you've got it all figured out, but it means I want to surrender fully to him. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, go ahead and stand right now. If you're a little nervous about it, you could squeeze a hand of someone next to you and say, would you stand with me to surrender yourself fully to him? And I want to give you that opportunity to do that.
want to just pray for those of us here today who have stood, who have said, I want to follow Jesus. I've decided. Maybe it's been partial before. Maybe it's been with conditions. Maybe it's been, if you show me more, then I'll do more. God, we take away all those conditions. And we just say, I surrender to you. Be my Lord and my Savior today. And I pray if you're standing today that you would just confess in your heart Pray with me, Lord God, I believe that you died for me, that you are the Lord of all, that you are the Son of Man, Son of God, and you died for me, and I receive you fully into my heart by faith, and I surrender everything, my life, my marriage, my children, my parents, my dog, my cat, just, it's all in your hands. My career, my acclaim, my reputation, my health. I just surrender it all to you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. You've made a commitment this day and it means something. Write it down in your journal. Say, this is the day I decided to surrender to Jesus fully. No holding back. I want us to sing that just quietly. We've decided to follow Jesus. No holding back. Holding back. Let's just sing that this morning. I want to go ahead and transition to time of ministry time as we sing, continue to sing together. Um, please feel free to come forward and pray. Whether or not you felt you wanted to stand or not in that moment, I know the Lord wants to minister to your heart, to continue to build that faith in you, to quench that thirst, to fill him, fill you up with himself. And so if that is your desire, come forward and pray. You can kneel at the altar on your own or you can come to our prayer uh, tables on the side. This is an opportunity for you to receive from the Lord. So let's let's go ahead and sing the 